So we are in the middle, we're the second sermon into a series on the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is also known in your Bibles as the kingdom of heaven. Those two are equivalent terms, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. They are, uh, can also be considered the rule of God. Some people translate it the rule of God. And it's not something that we, I, I, I don't think we think about the kingdom of God enough in our lives. Because Jesus made it a key part of his life. The first thing he said when he started ministry was, okay guys, repent, the kingdom of God is here, it's at hand. Throughout his ministry, he told stories. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. The kingdom of God is like a seed. The kingdom of God is like a pearl. The kingdom of God is like this. He tried to get them to see what this kingdom of God was like. And after he died, rose from the dead, before he ascended, he had just a few short weeks to impress upon his fledgling disciples the most important message he could. And Acts tells us that he taught them about the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is significant. It's important. We kind of had an overview of the kingdom of God. Oh, thanks, Andy. Uh, the overview of the kingdom of God this past week. I won't recite the whole thing, but just to catch on a few main points. In order for there to be a kingdom, you need three things, three ingredients if you're baking a cake. Three ingredients for the kingdom of God. The first is you need a king. And as we, I chose that last song for a reason, not just because it was old and familiar. You are my king. In order to have a kingdom of God, you need a king. And Jesus is the king. Uh, God himself returned to his temple. God is our king. The Lord Jesus Christ is our king. You also need, second thing, our subjects. Citizens of the kingdom. You need people who acknowledge the rule of the king. And that's us. That's us. We acknowledge that God is our king. The Lord Jesus is our king. We have uh, Jesus as the king. We as his subjects. And you also need land or territory. And uh, in the ancient kingdom of Israel, uh, you had David as the king, the Israelites as the subjects, and that strip of land over in Palestine as the kingdom, as the land. But now, Jesus is the king. We are the subjects. And wherever we come together, that's where the kingdom of God is. (laughs) In fact, Jesus was quizzed by some of the Pharisees of his day saying, um, uh, when, when is this kingdom coming? You're talking about this kingdom. Well, I don't see it anywhere. Do you? What's the big deal? And Jesus says, listen, don't go saying, where's the kingdom? Is it over here? Is it over there? What leads to the kingdom? Oh, I think I see it over there in the distance. Don't just stop. The kingdom of God is among you. And when he said that, he was saying, it's here. When there's Jesus as king, people together as his subjects and the, the land, the, the ground that we stand on, there is the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God is different from the, from the normal kingdoms of this world. And that's what makes everything so confusing. And so for the next, uh, this week and then three more, we're going to be looking at the kingdom stories that Jesus told. The kingdom parables, I call them six short stories. We're going to obviously be doubling up on some days because some of them are very, very short. But today we're looking at the story of the weeds and the wheat, or the wheat and the tares, if you uh, have the King James heading in your Bible, is what it is. And in order to get us thinking, and in order to stick this message in your mind for days to come, I'm going to evoke 
a sense of nostalgia in some of us of a certain age. So if you wouldn't mind playing that video I have set up, Kitty. and millennials. I apologize for that just pure moment of nostalgia that the Gen Xers and above will get. That was from 1980, but it, it ran for from 1979 for, I think, seven, seven or eight seasons. It was pretty popular. But every time I read this parable, I can't help but think of that. You take the good, you take the bad, you take the both, and there you have the facts of life. It keeps going through my mind compulsively. I can't get it out of there because that's what this story is about. It's an acknowledgement that even though the kingdom of God is here, present, right now, it's not all roses. You take the good, you take the bad. You take, there, okay, I'll stop. But for some of you, you'll have that in your head all week and you can think of this message. Again, you're welcome. Uh, th this, so this parable is taken from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and then it's picked up again in, in verses 36 to 43. We are very fortunate with this parable because there are only three parables in the entire, uh, in the entire Gospels where Jesus actually tells us what it means, and this is one of them. So we don't have to do a lot of guesswork. Because at the end, when the disciples get Jesus alone, they say, to him, what was the deal with that parable you just told? And he says, oh, let me tell you, this is this, and this means that, and that means the other thing, and there, that's it, the end. So it's, well, you'll see as we go. And instead of having the scripture on the screen, I have some of the key features of this parable on the left-hand side of the screen. Here is another story that Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in the field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came in and planted weeds among the wheat and slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. Um, in case you're wondering about the seriousness of this story, the Romans actually made laws, passed laws against this sort of sabotage. This was an illegal thing to do. This was something you took seriously because you could destroy a crop by doing this. There's this type of, uh, it's called ryegrass or darnel. I don't know how to pronounce the, maybe it's darnel. I don't know. But there's this type of grass that grows up and it looks like wheat almost until the very end. But it can carry a poisonous fungus. So this was a very serious threat. So the, the farmer, the kingdom of God is like a farmer that plants good seed in the ground. But then an enemy slips in and sows bad seed and they grow up together. Verse 27, the farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? Should we pull out? Uh, an enemy has done this. 
The farmer explained. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied. If you uproot, you'll uproot the wheat if you do so. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I'll tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles and burn them, and put the wheat in the barn. So in the next slide, we see the interpretation. Leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, can you please tell us what that story means? Jesus replied, The Son of Man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world. The good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is at the end of the world. And the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in fire, so will it be at the end of the world. It's kind of ominous. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. The angels will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Listen, if anyone has ears to hear, they should listen and understand. Took a dark turn, didn't it? It's a challenging parable to read, to interpret. But I think it's an important one. This parable really tells us two things. This is going to be the first two main points of the message. And then there's, I'm going to stretch the meaning of the parable just a little bit further to something that the parable itself doesn't quite say, but I think is important in Scripture for us to grasp. So the first point is this. The kingdom of God is here, despite the weeds. The kingdom of God is here despite the chaos and destruction and terror and sin and evil that we see in the world. The kingdom is here nonetheless. And I want you to think just for a minute about what it would have been like to be a follower of Jesus, one of the twelve, in those early years when Jesus told them, the kingdom of God is among you. They would have looked around and thought, well, one, two, three, four, carry the seven. There's twelve of us. Um, following, uh, uh, following a, a Jewish prophet who we believe is the Messiah. So that makes 13. And Oh yeah, there's these crowds of peasants that seem to follow us everywhere because we fed them and they like that. But you don't let them take swords. You don't let them pick up arms. You don't equip them. We're not much of a kingdom. It wasn't much of a revolutionary force. In fact, when Pete, I, I love this scene. When Jesus was about to be arrested in the garden, Peter took out his sword and valiantly slashed the ear off the one slave that had come to to pick up Jesus. And uh, I guess he didn't have much um, experience with a sword because I'm pretty sure the ear is not the target. But anyways, uh, he slashes his ear off and Jesus says, Peter, put it away. And then he heals his enemy. I love it. It's not much of a kingdom. In fact, I have, a, I have a map of the Roman Empire from the first century. That's what the Roman Empire looked like. L- look at how big it extended. Those are all different territories in the empire. That dotted line is kind of the outside. So what we would today call Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, uh, Greece, Turkey. I'm missing some countries in there. My geography is a little weak. 
Um, yeah, but, but Turkey, Syria, all the way down, and then all of the northern African countries, that was all the Roman kingdom. And the Roman kingdom had the military force. They were powerful. They were the big, important people. They, they, they enforced their peace. This is peace, and if you don't like it, I'll show you the other side of peace. That was Roman peace. So they were this great big conquering force, and Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is here. And the disciples, um, one, two, three, four, it didn't make sense, right? You can understand why they didn't get it. Because 13 people in a crowd of peasants is not a kingdom. In the conventional sense of the term. But the kingdom of God is not conventional. It's something different. When kingdoms in this world decide to uh, expand and go and take new territories and all that, there's three general ways that they do it. The first is genocide, right? Go in, wipe out everyone, take the land. That's what we do. The second way that they, they take the land is through exile. And that's what the Babylonians were so good at doing. They went into Jerusalem. They, they took a lot of the best and the brightest of the Jewish people from Jerusalem and shipped them off into Babylon and, and left just the poor people in the fields to tend because someone needed to pay the taxes for the land. The third way that kingdoms in this world uh, take new territory is through cultural integration. You know what? They have the biggest and the brightest uh, entertainment facilities. Um, the Greeks were famous for their theaters, for their games, for all these things. And the culture just kind of gets sucked in. Maybe you've experienced this. You're trying to be a Christian, but you just get kind of sucked into the culture surrounding you. This is how the kingdoms of this world work. And they establish territory. And it is, it is lunacy to think that there could be two kingdoms in the same territory. Right? Can you imagine if Muskoka was declared part of Canada and part of the USA at the same time? That, we have, that, it, that somehow it's both things at once? It wouldn't make sense. Because that doesn't work. The closest we get to that in this world is an embassy where it's an outpost of another country within another country by that country's graces. But it can only be one or the other. You only have one choice. And uh, we are living in the kingdom of Canada. Uh, I'm using biblical word kingdom. I know we don't go by kingdom. But we're living in Canada. But... The kingdom of God isn't like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of God doesn't push out and become its own thing. The kingdom of God grows up like wheat among weeds. It mixes so that we can say, unlike any of the other kingdoms, right here, there are two kingdoms in this territory. Right here. This is part of Canada. And frankly, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I love our country. Uh, God has ordained some of the powers of this world. They, you know, they tend to run with their power too far in many cases, but there's nothing inherently wrong about, uh, about the kingdom of Canada. Well, this is Canada, I'm thankful for it, but at the same time, because we serve King Jesus, because we are his subjects, and because we are here in this place, this land is also the kingdom of God at the same time. The two kingdoms are growing up together like two different types of crops in a farmer's field, like weeds and wheat growing up at the same time. There's a famous, uh, a famous passage from Revelation made famous by Handel in his oratorio. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. It shows these two kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world versus the kingdom of God. And like I said, in the early days, the kingdom of God did not look like much. 
Well, what's it look like now? Have you ever given any thought to what Christianity looks like in the world today? We have some statistics. Our best statistics are about eight years old, though, so these are from 2010. But in case you're curious, um, in the world as of 2010, about a third of the world claim to be Christians. One third, one in three. That's remarkable. If you were to pick a random sample of humans around the globe, one in three would say that they're Christian. By comparison, about one in four would say they're Muslim. About 16% would say that they have no affiliation, 15% Hindu, and they go down from there, 7% Buddhist, 6% folk religions and other religions. The state of the world is pretty, and, and when you look in Canada, this is something that's interesting. In Canada, as of the 2010, or the 2011 from Stats Canada, there were about 22 million Christians in Canada. A lot, two-thirds of this country claim to be Christian. Now, whether it's cultural, whether it's just something to say, we don't know, but it's significant. The trend is going in the wrong direction. More and more, the biggest growing people in Canada are those who have no religion at all, who disavow any sort of religion. Um, sociologists call them religious nuns. But I want you to imagine for just a moment, if you could, going back in time, Showing up that moment when Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you, and the disciples were like, ah, there's 13 of us and a crowd of peasants. Imagine if you could go back in time and say, you know what, we come from 2,000 years in the future. We smell like deodorant. <laughs> we're, we're more cleanly shaven. Things are good. Um, we've done remarkable things. And now... There are this number of Christians in the world. One, one third of the population of the world follow this Messiah of yours. They would be shocked. They would be utterly stunned because in, it would be incomprehensible to think of how this kingdom has expanded. But it's not a static story. Christianity has been growing in the global south. It's been expanding in the global south, but it's been in decline in the global north. We've been becoming more secular up here in the West. But despite it all, the kingdom of God is still here. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world growing up together. It's the way that it is. And just because there's bad things happening in the world doesn't mean the kingdom of God isn't here. Just because you turn on the news, and I'm not going to recite what's on the news these days, but just because you turn on the news and see all the horrible things that are happening in the world, it doesn't mean that God isn't here and that the kingdom is not here. The kingdom of God grows up in amongst the weeds together. The second thing this parable teaches us is that judgment will come. Just not yet. Judgment will come but you have to wait about it, wait for it a little bit. And here's where I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I read that parable, I felt uncomfortable. When I read about the farmer gathering up the weeds and tithing, tying them into bundles and using them as fuel for the fire, I thought, oh, really? I kind of wish that wasn't in there. It, it's, not, it's not a pleasant thing. I think to myself, well, can't... What if those weeds wanted to change? What if, isn't there a way that God can reach those weeds 
isn't there something we can do? When, when I read the words of judgment, especially in the New Testament, I, I, I have a challenging time reading them. I find it difficult to read. Yet when we hear about horrible crime, we long for that sort of justice. This past week, Paul Bernardo was up for bail, and he didn't get it, as everyone expected. But there was an outrage across Canada. Why? Because justice needed to happen. There's this inner sense we have that justice has to happen, that justice is important. And so when you look at it from one perspective, you think, ah, it seems a little harsh. I kind of wish it wasn't in there. And then when you look at it from another perspective, you see that, no, justice is important. For the Jewish person, justice was a good thing because they were the oppressed minority. They, they were the ones that were being downtrodden. They were the ones that were suffering. And when they talked about justice or judgment, they were thinking, God, when is the time going to come when you'll finally take care of us? When are you going to, to um, uh, those people that hurt us and wound us and, and, and injure us, aren't you going to do anything about that? Is there any sense of justice in the world? That's the perspective that the Bible takes on judgment. I want to tell you another little story. This story is from a book that was written in the first century. It was probably written in northern Africa by, in a Jewish community. It's not a Christian book. It's a Jewish book. And it's called The Testament of Abraham. And in The Testament of Abraham, the, the person who is writing it um, tells a fictional story about Abraham. But I think this fictional story can tell us a lot about how people understand judgment. I found it very interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you. I actually have a picture of, of the... Thankfully, we have good people to translate this stuff, because I'd be lost. The angel, Archangel Michael, went down and took Abraham upon a chariot led by angels and exalted him into the air of heaven and led him on a cloud together with 60 angels, and Abraham ascended upon a chariot all over the earth. Just remind you, in case you're wondering where I'm going with this, this is not scripture. This is not something that happened. This is a work of fiction, but it will tell us how the Jewish people thought in that day. Abraham saw the world as it was that day. Some were plowing. Some were driving wagons. In one place, men were herding flocks. In another place, watching them by night and dancing and playing and harping. In another place, uh, men were striving and contending. Elsewhere, men were weeping, having the dead in remembrance. He also saw the newly wedded received with honor. And in a word, he saw all the things that were done in the world, both good and bad. So Abraham, as he was passing over the world, he saw men bearing swords wielding in their hands sharpened swords. And Abraham asked the chief captain, who are these? The chief captain said, these are thieves. They intend to commit murder, to steal, to burn, and to destroy. So Abraham said, Lord, Lord, hear my voice and command that wild beasts may come out of the woods and devour them. And even as he spoke, there came wild beasts out of the wood and devoured them. You wouldn't want Abraham to be your judge. In another place, he saw a man and a woman committing fornication with each other and said, Lord, Lord, command that the earth may open and swallow them. 
And straight away the earth was cleft and swallowed them up. In another place he saw men digging through a house, carrying away another man's possessions. And he said, Lord, Lord, command that fire may come down from heaven and consume them. And even as he spoke, fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And straight away there came the voice from heaven to the chief captain saying this, the voice from heaven is God. O oh, chief captain Michael, command the chariot to stop and turn Abraham away, that he may not see the earth. For if he behold all that live in wickedness, he's going to destroy the whole thing. For behold, Abraham has not sinned and has no pity on sinners, but I made this world, and I don't desire to destroy any one of them. But wait for the death of the sinner so he can be converted and live. But take Abraham up to the first gate of heaven. So you can see what's going on. And this is a long story. I'm not going to read the whole thing. That's all I'm going to read. It goes on and on. But the point is this. When Abraham, a godly man, saw the wickedness happening in the world, his instinct was to say, ah, judge it. Judge it. Bring judgment. And God said, cover his eyes. Don't let him see what's going on. Why? Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. God doesn't want anyone to die. There will be judgment. There will be justice. But God doesn't want to see anyone succumb. This is similar to what Paul taught, or to what Peter taught. You must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come saying, where is this promise coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now what that is, is this same, you know what? When's this going to happen? We don't see the kingdom of God coming. Things look bad and so on. Are you sure God even still cares about us? We're 2,000 years in from, from these events, so what is the big deal? Do not ignore this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think about slowness, but he is patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God delays judgment so that people can come to him. That's why, that's why we wait. That's why there's weeds and wheat growing up together. That's why the end hasn't happened, because God is patient. He doesn't want to see anyone perish. He doesn't want to see anyone um, uh, suffer in a final sense. He wants them to be rescued, so he's patient. And our mission in this world is to announce and to live the kingdom of God so that people can see there is a God. There is a kingdom. There is a real way to live. To set people free from their from selfish desires and set them their eyes, their mind on the kingdom of God. Judgment will happen. Things will be set right. God created this world to be very good and glorious. And he will see that it becomes that. But in the meantime, he is delaying for our sake, for the sake of the world, that it might be rescued. Now, the third thing I want to share. Let, let me just revisit where we're at with this parable so far. The first thing is that the kingdom of God is here, even though we still see evil and weeds around us. The second point is that justice will come. Judgment will come, just not yet, because God's patiently waiting so that people can come to him willingly. 
But the final thing is this, what about us? Because if I'm honest with myself, there are wheat-like and weed-like impulses in my heart. And the roots of those two impulses are tangled up. Sometimes you think you're doing something for all the right reasons, and then you reflect a couple weeks later that, oh, maybe it was that, that was the reason. The weeds are tangled with the wheat and the weeds. That's why they can't pull the weeds up because it'll destroy the wheat in the parable. And this is a bit further than the parable goes, but it's founded in Scripture, which is why I wanted to go here this morning. We all have these, these dual impulses inside of us. We who have given our lives to God, we, we want to set our minds on things above. We want to live fully in the kingdom of God, but we still have this dual citizenship. We still have our feet in the kingdoms of this world. We still have a desire for both kingdoms. A desire that's deeply intertwined. So you and I, we need to be refined. We need to be purified. That's why I chose Refiner's Fire. Again, I picked a couple uh, significantly older worship tunes this morning because of the message. We need to be refined. And that's what this life is for. Through everything we go through, the suffering that you go through, the chaos, the tragedy that we go through in our life, as we continue to seek God through that, he, it is a refining process that lessens the, lessens the stranglehold of the weeds in our life and refines us. I realized when I was preparing this part of my message that I don't think I've ever talked about this with the church. It's been almost 10 years, and I don't think I've ever come at these scriptures. And they, so I debated the best way to explain this, and I thought the best thing I could do is just give you the scripture itself and, and, and let, the, let the Holy Spirit kind of work in your heart. So I encourage you, I'm going to read three passages of scripture to close. One from Peter, one from Paul, and one from the author of Hebrews. And I want you to consider what the Spirit might be saying to you. Here's what Peter said. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's sufferings so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when the glory is revealed. For the time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. We get excited about hearing justice is coming, but when we realize that it starts in us, it's a different thing. Time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. Here's the way Paul approaches this topic. According to the grace of God that was given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation someone else is building on. Each builder must choose how to build on it. No one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. So Paul is talking about our lives as foundation, as, as, as on the foundation of Jesus, and then he talks about how we build on that foundation. If anyone builds with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of the builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire. The fire will test the sort of work that's been done. If what's been built in the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward, but if the work is all burned up, the builder will suffer loss. And 
builder will be saved, but only as through fire. The, the, the metaphor again is of the fire of God being a refining process that reveals who we truly are. And finally, the author of Hebrews. See that you don't refuse the one who's speaking. If they didn't escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? At, this, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This phrase, once more, indicates the removal of what is shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken remain. So since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us give thanks by which we offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And then this verse, for our God is a consuming fire. I recognize right now that I'm sharing verses that run counter to the way the world likes to think about God. Um, a lot of Christian circles are influenced by a therapeutic view of God. And what I mean by that is the messages tend to be um, how can God help me to live a better life? That's what the therapeutic view of God is. The point of life is, is me, and God is the agent by which I can have a better life. And I believe that God does really bless me in many ways, and I do live a better life, a more fulfilling, rewarding life because of God's influence. I don't want to minimize that, but it puts all the focus on me, and God is the one who just meets my needs all the time. These verses reflect a deeper truth, and that's this. That the fire of God, our God is a consuming fire, is something that we, as followers of Jesus, willingly experience before the end. We allow the fire of God to test us now. We allow God's fire to burn in our lives, if we could say it that way. And if our lives are made up of hay and stubble and tinder, then what we've built will be burned up and we'll have nothing left to show for it. But what is eternal, what is founded on Jesus, and what he's created us to be will remain. That's why I chose the song Refiner's Fire. We're going to go to it one more time in closing. I want to invite you, as a Christian, to allow God to test and to refine your heart and see what remains. I want you to, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, walk into the furnace and see what remains. You see, this parable ends with a call for a decision. When Jesus finished the parable, he said, he who has ears, let him hear what is what is being said. So it was this intense moment of this, this parable means something. And the question is, whose kingdom do you stand in? Is it the weed or the weeds? And allow God to come and test you. So we are going to pray. We're going to sing just one more time, Refiner's Fire. And uh, let's see what God says. Our Father in Heaven. Um, thank you for... Uh, the kingdom. Thank you for the life you've given us. Thank you for... Um, I don't even know what to say, Lord. 
You are so good to us in so many ways. But you've created us for a purpose. You've created us not for just life in the kingdoms of this world, but you've created us for life in the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I pray as we sing this song one more time that you would test our hearts. Reveal to us what we're made of and lead us evermore towards you. Pray this in Jesus' name.